This week, is very early mobilization helpful for stroke patients? And does the combined use of antidepressants and anti-inflammatory medications increase the risk of bleeding in the brain? Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at Healthy Debate. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And today I'm joined for the first time ever by my good friend, Riot Jundi, who is a resident in neurology, also at the University of Toronto. Hey, Riot, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure to have you. Uh, so, Riot, uh, I'm really excited because today we get to talk all about brains, the organ that you care the most about. You know how much I love brains. You are the king of brains. Okay. <laughs> So, why don't we jump right in? So, Ryan, why don't you talk to me about the safety and efficacy of early mobilization in stroke patients? Sure. So, uh, this trial came out in the Lancet in the summer. Uh, it was called Efficacy and Safety of Very Early Mobilization Within 24 Hours of Stroke Onset. And the one-liner is that it's a randomized controlled trial that showed that early aggressive rehabilitation for acute stroke patients resulted in worse outcomes at three months. Interesting and counterintuitive. Okay, so let's get into it. So why did you want to discuss this study? Well, I think everyone sort of knows that stroke units lead to better outcomes for stroke patients. Uh, and uh, it's not the magic of the stroke unit that leads to this, but rather the complex care interventions that patients receive, one of which is rehabilitation. The problem is these care packages are quite difficult to quantify, uh, particularly in randomized controlled trials. Uh, and I think the authors here have done an excellent job in doing so. So there's been some evidence that giving early and aggressive rehabilitation leads to better outcomes for stroke patients, but this has been in the context of uh, very small trials. So this is the first large trial addressing this question in a systematic way. You can imagine how this might make sense. Immobility is bad for patients, uh, can lead to multiple complications. And there's a theoretical idea that early on, one might be able to capitalize on brain plasticity to improve uh, function and stroke outcomes. On the other hand, uh, we're always careful about blood pressure in the acute setting, uh, and getting patients up and moving might not be the best thing for blood pressure uh, and for the evolving infarct or hemorrhage. Similarly, there might be a risk of falls for patients. So there are arguments that point towards both improvement and worsening uh, in stroke outcomes with early rehabilitation. So that's why this trial was so important. Sounds like perfect fodder and clinical equipoise for a, a randomized control trial. So I think just instinctively, the trend in medicine and surgery is toward early rehabilitation, certainly showing improved post-surgical outcomes. Uh, so my gut instinct would be that this uh, intervention would be effective. It would be my gut too as well. Okay, so let's get into it and see what they actually found. So what, uh, what was the study design here? What were their methods? So basically it was a randomized single blinded study because clearly you can't blind the physiotherapist to the, uh, the intervention they're providing. It was done in five different countries. And in the study was deemed pragmatic, uh, which meant it acknowledged the variation in physiotherapy practices at different sites and allowed for that variability. So basically there are two groups. 
one of which was the early mobilization group. And you had to have three elements. Physiotherapy had to begin within 24 hours of stroke onset. Three additional sessions of physiotherapy had to be provided over the usual care. And sitting, standing, and walking uh, would be the uh, methods of physiotherapy depending on the capabilities of the patient. Now this was compared to the usual care group, but no particular parameters were mandated for usual care. This was just what people would do at that particular site. Okay, and so who were the patients that they included in the study? So they included patients that were 18 years or older and had either ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke, and also were independent prior to having their stroke, which in this trial meant a modified Rankin score of 0 to 2. Perfect. And so what was the primary outcome that they were assessing? The primary outcome was the modified Rankin score at 3 months, and they were looking at minimal or no disability uh, or independence, which was again 0 to 2 on the modified Rankin scale. They did have some secondary outcomes, including an ordinal shift of the Rankin scale, seeing if there was any shift across the categories, walking time, those achieving unassisted walking, as well as deaths and non-fatal serious adverse events. So a bunch of functional outcomes, basically, as well as adverse events. Exactly. Okay, so what did they find? So about a 1,000 patients were randomized to each group, and they found that Interestingly, more patients in the usual care group than early mobilization group achieved a favorable outcome at three months. So it was 50% of patients in the usual care group compared to 46% of patients in the early aggressive physiotherapy group uh, were alive and independent at three months. And that was an odds ratio of 0.73 for early aggressive rehabilitation. And that was statistically significant? It was. And what about the secondary outcomes? So there are no differences in any of the secondary outcomes, including walking time, number of patients who needed assistance while walking, or any of the complications occurring in hospital, including DVTs, PEs, neurological deterioration, and death. Okay, so before we dive into interpreting these results, let's just quickly do an analysis of the quality of this study. Uh, so were there any limitations or concerns in terms of bias or problems with uh, the methodology of this trial? So I think the main limitation was that this is a single-blinded trial, uh, so the physiotherapists providing the care uh, knew uh, which group the patients were in, of course, because they were giving early physiotherapy. However, one would expect that this would lead to better outcomes if there was any bias in that regard. As well, the study was run over a long time, eight years, uh, which meant that there was change in the usual care group in the sense that physiotherapy was being offered earlier and earlier as the years went on. And so both groups approached each other more and more by the end of the eight years. Oh, that's so interesting. So, so what was the difference between the intervention group and the control group in terms of the timing of physiotherapy and the amount of physiotherapy provided? So the three crucial elements that they uh, sought to implement were achieved. Early mobilization occurred in the intervention group, so that happened within 18 hours, compared to the usual group, which was five hours later. As well, patients received more frequent physiotherapy in the intervention group, and they had a total time of around 200 minutes of physiotherapy during their stay, up to 14 days compared to 70 minutes in the usual care group. 
So a lot more walking around. So can you tell me a little bit about what the patients looked like in this study? What was their age? Uh, how severe were their strokes? How many of them received thrombolytic therapy? Sure. So the average age of both groups was 72. About 75% of patients in both groups were a ranking score of zero, so absolutely no disability. About a quarter of patients in both groups received thrombolysis, and the average NIH score was seven, so about moderate stroke. Okay, so a, a relatively healthy pre-morbid population that then had moderate strokes. Exactly, and both groups did not differ in any way uh, in the baseline characteristics. Okay, so Ryan, let's get into the interesting part of where we get to pontificate about this finding. So how do you explain this finding that early rehabilitation harms patients with stroke? To be fair, it's a bit difficult to explain. Certainly one can invoke the blood pressure issue in the sense that blood pressure lability and variability early on could lead to extension of either an ischemic infarct or a hemorrhagic stroke. Um, however, that didn't necessarily bear out in the trial because neurological deterioration and uh, second infarct was the same across both groups. However, that doesn't really eliminate the possibility of more subtle uh, deleterious effects on the brain during that acute period. And so you think it's that uh, exercise in this early period when the brain is more fragile and the blood perfusion to the brain is more tenuous might actually cause harm? I think that's a plausible scenario and it's one that's borne out in rat experiments. Oh. So... <laughs> Go back to the basic science <laughs> literature. Basic science. This is what happens when you get a subspecialist on the podcast. They start, they start uh, referencing rat experiments. And we all know that all rat experiments apply just <laughs> as well to humans. Yeah. So how do you translate this into clinical practice? Well, I think one can reasonably say, based on the trial, that waiting 24 hours after acute stroke to initiate rehabilitation might be the safest way to go. Beyond that, it's difficult to give specific prescriptions for the physiotherapy uh, in terms of frequency or time. And I think uh, we're going to have to await with bated breath uh, the sub-analyses and further studies uh, that can give us uh, more specific and, and uh, patient-oriented uh, physiotherapy regimens. Perfect. Okay. Thanks so much, uh, Ryad, for this uh expert analysis of an interesting study. Uh, so can Certainly you no expert. <laughs> well, you're training to be an expert. Let's put it there. So um, tell me... To conclude, what is your takeaway point from this study? So my takeaway point is that after acute stroke, early aggressive therapy can actually lead to worse outcomes, and waiting 24 hours after stroke to initiate physiotherapy might be the more reasonable approach. Perfect. Thank you so much. Let's change gears, but continue to talk about brains. Yes! So I want to talk about a large observational study that was published in the BMJ, which found that uh, patients using both antidepressants and anti-inflammatory medications have an increased risk of intracranial hemorrhage. Interesting. So why did they embark on this study to begin with? Yeah, so this paper is about uh, two of the most commonly used uh, medications being antidepressants and anti-inflammatory medications. And what we know is that antidepressants, especially uh, the class that is SSRIs, uh, have been associated with an increased risk of bleeding. 
there was a meta-analysis in 2008 that showed that uh, SSRIs increase the risk of upper GI bleeding uh, by about 2.3 times. And when you combine SSRIs with anti-inflammatory medication, that risk of bleeding increases even further so that the risk of bleeding is about six times that of baseline. So these authors wanted to conduct the first analysis of not upper GI bleeding, but intracranial bleeding, because it hadn't been studied before. Sounds reasonable. So how did they design the study? So this was a study using the Korean National Health Insurance Plan database, which is a database about all healthcare use and prescription drugs for all Koreans. It's a universal uh, health insurance system. And it's based on administrative data from insurance claims. So they included all patients who were new users of antidepressants between January 2010 and December 2013. This isolated the analysis to people who were new starts on antidepressants. And then they also excluded patients who had a previous history of cerebrovascular disease, who were over the age of 99, people who had a previous diagnosis of intracranial hemorrhage, uh, or uh, people who were taking prescriptions for more than one antidepressant. The primary exposure of interest was people who were, who were receiving a prescription for antidepressants as well as a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. So what was the primary outcome? Yeah, so the primary outcome of interest was time to first hospital admission with intracranial hemorrhage within 30 days of starting their new antidepressant. They also measured a number of possible confounding variables, including age, sex, uh, comorbidities, and other medications. So they performed uh, a propensity-matched analysis uh, to compare patients who were on antidepressants alone with patients who received a prescription of an anti-inflammatory drug as well as an antidepressant. So what they found was that their propensity match cohort included 4.1 million people. And what they found was that patients who were just taking an antidepressant had an incidence of intracranial hemorrhage that was, and here's some uh, numbers, so pay close attention, 1.6 per 1,000 patient years in the group that was just taking antidepressants alone. And in the group that was taking both antidepressants and anti-inflammatory medications, it was 5.7 per 1,000 person years. So those are unadjusted numbers. If we look at the difference between those numbers and calculate a number needed to harm, remembering that these are unadjusted numbers, there was a number needed to harm of about 244 people per year. So that means for every 244 people who were taking both of the medications, an anti-inflammatory and an antidepressant, uh, there was one increase in intracranial bleeding. They then performed, obviously, the adjusted analyses, uh, and the adjusted odds ratio found that when people were taking both medications, there was an odds ratio of 1.6 for having an intracranial bleed, so an increase of 1.6 times uh, the risk of having an intracranial bleed. Okay, so were there patient subgroups that were at greatest risk? Yeah, so as I mentioned, they measured a number of possible confounders that could contribute to the risk of having a bleed. And the factors that they found uh, that were associated with increased uh, risk of bleeding, which they then adjusted for, were 
a diagnosis of dementia, people who were also taking warfarin or heparin, and also people who were taking uh, steroids. So those factors were actually adjusted for, and so presumably then the people that, were, uh, that met those criteria were at increased risk. After they did their adjustment, uh, there was actually only one group of patients which were at higher risk, and that was men. And men had roughly double the risk of women of having uh, intracranial bleeding. Okay, was there any relationship to the actual dose of NSAIDs that was given? Or SSRIs? Yeah, so they actually didn't report any analysis about uh, dose response, but I think it's a good question. Uh, the other question that they did look at was whether there were any specific classes of antidepressants that put people at higher risk. And actually what they found was that all of the classes of antidepressants, including tricyclic antidepressants, SSRIs, SNRIs, name one it was included, uh, all of the classes had basically no difference between them. So to summarize, the people who are most at risk seem to be men, uh, and the other factors that are associated are uh, the presence of dementia, being on an anticoagulant, uh, and using steroids. So interesting results, and certainly can be potentially concerning for men who are on a combination of antidepressants and NSAIDs. Um, I wonder how practical this is, given that many people, for example, who present with pain syndromes or um, unifying diagnoses that uh, require both antidepressants and pain medication, uh, do we really think we should be withholding NSAIDs from these patients? And the second issue is whether the results from such massive registries, uh, which now may become more and more common um, and may pick up more and more drug interactions, should dictate uh, our prescribing practices. Okay, so two, I think, uh, very crucial uh, points that you raise. And obviously, uh, as a fifth-year resident in uh, general internal medicine, I'm perfectly qualified <laughs> to speak with authority about both of them. Um, no, but I'll share my thoughts because I think you're right. So I think your, your second question uh, is the one we should talk about first, which is can we believe these results and, you know, what do we do with such data mining uh, expeditions that highlight potentially important drug interactions uh, through these, you know, super large registries. I think that we know that there are concerns about data quality in large administrative claims-based data sets. Specifically, for example, we're talking here about anti-inflammatory medications. A lot of those might be over-the-counter uh, medications and may not be captured in, in a, a data set like this. The other thing is that obviously claims-based data don't actually speak to whether or not patients are taking medications, but rather whether patients uh, had a prescription and sometimes whether it was filled out. So, right. you know, there, there, there are real issues about data quality, and I think as a result, we should interpret these uh, findings with caution. The other, I think, important point is that you need really large sample sizes in order to actually find some of these interactions. And I would argue that, in fact, this while you, you mentioned sort of this is a small uh, effect size, it's not that small when you think about the frequency of these medications being used and a number needed to harm of about 244 people, uh, you know, that's, that's not negligible. And so I think that these are best used as hypothesis generating results, but then if that's the case, what's the like type of study that's going to answer the question? Because like I said, we need large data sets. And I think this is where the emergence of higher quality clinical data using for perhaps electronic medical records 
um, could help answer some of these questions because uh, we'll be able to get better data quality uh, and at the same time uh, answer, have large enough data sets where we can answer questions like this. So that's my sort of overview response to that. And so then given that, this is your second, that helps us answer I think your second question which is what do we do with these results? Do we stop prescribing NSAIDs to patients who are also on antidepressants? I think what this does tells me as a practitioner is that this is an important interaction that we've now seen increases the risk of GI bleeding. So it's very plausible and makes sense that it would also increase the risk of intracranial bleeding and that this is a non-negligible risk. And so when we see patients who are on this combination of medications, we should think whether both medications are required and whether we can uh, stop one of them safely. And if we can, then we should. That sounds reasonable and doable. All right. So why don't I wrap up and give my uh, one-line takeaway, which is that this large observational study showed an increased risk of intracranial bleeding in patients who receive both antidepressants and anti-inflammatory medications. And I think that this should serve as cautionary evidence for practitioners to recognize that this might be a clinically important drug-drug interaction. Okay, so why don't we move on to uh, what is always the best part of uh, the podcasting day, which is the good stuff segment. So, uh, Ryan, tell me about something that caught your eye from the world of medicine this week. Sure. So, I would recommend reading The Public Health Dimension of Germany's Refugee Crisis, as, which is published on Health Affairs blog, as well as Caring for the Wake of Refugees in Munich, which is published this month in New England Journal of Medicine. Both of these articles basically describe the physician's viewpoint of caring for patients who have come as refugees to Germany, including the kinds of cases they are seeing, uh, dehydration, torture, mental health, and how to design effective systems in terms of logistics, vaccinations, and uh, streamlining patients into the healthcare system, and essentially argue for the fact that Giving good health care to refugees that are arriving is not only the right thing to do, but also economically uh, the smartest thing to do, uh, given that uh, healthy refugees will be more able to integrate and work and um, immediately give back to the society. That is a uh, great and uh, super topical recommendation. Thanks, Ryan. I want to direct our listeners' attention to an article at the uh, Hopkins Medicine blog uh, called the patient wish, wish list. So this is a list of the most common pieces of feedback that the patient relations director at Johns Hopkins Hospital uh, hears. So the list is not meant to be comprehensive but rather a conversation starter and so here are the top 10 things uh, that they felt uh, patients asked for about their hospitalization. First, let me sleep. Second, Keep the noise levels down at the nurse's station. Third, don't lose my personal belongings. Fourth, knock on the door before entering. Fifth, please keep my whiteboard current and up to date. Sixth, update me and my family if you notice changes in my condition. Seven, keep my room clean. Eight, listen to me and engage me in my care. 9. Please orient me to my room and my hospital so I know where important things are located and how they work. And 10. Please maintain professionalism in all areas of the hospital. So the thing that strikes me about this list, uh, Riot, is that 
these things seem like pretty basic criteria for delivering like decent, not even high quality, decent quality in patient-centered care. And it strikes me as a little bit surprising that uh, for some reason, it's so difficult to deliver even these very basic things. You're right. It's, it's a good list. And I think uh, sometimes we get lost in the medicine when we should be thinking about how to help patients feel more human while they're in the hospital. All right, Ryan. It has been a pleasure to speak with you about brains. Can we do it again sometime? I would love to do it again sometime. Talk to you soon. Bye. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash the rounds table. Follow us on Twitter at rounds table or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash rounds table podcast. Thanks for listening.